politics can be a funny game. If yesterday just 323 fewer voters had turned out for Labour in West Yorkshire, on tonight's show, we would likely be discussing the runners and riders in an imminent leadership election. However, because 13,296 people voted Labour and only 12,973 people voted for the Tories in Batley and Spen, the context of tonight's show is rather different. That's because for now, that 0.9% margin means Keir Starmer has a renewed mandate as Labour leader. And in his words, Labour is coming home. To discuss the Batley and Spend by election, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. I'm very well. Sorry to sort something out. I'm extraordinarily well, especially given I only got six hours sleep. Yeah, I, I actually didn't mean to stay up for the results and then I just couldn't sleep. So I ended up being up at sort of like half five in the morning. I could have just had a good night's sleep and, and woken up for this. Labour's election victory in Batley and Spen was certainly not resounding, but it did come as a surprise. We can see the results here. Labour on 35%, the Conservatives on 34%, and George Galloway on 22%. Now, as you can see there in terms of the changes, Labour were down eight points, the Tories down two. So you might look at that, think that was a bad night for Labour. However, given that George Galloway was mainly appealing to disaffected Labour voters, and we can expect much of that 22% that he received to be former Labour voters, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party have some means to be relieved, confident when it comes to these, these results. I mean, we'll, we'll be discussing to what extent as this show goes on. Now, the victory by almost everyone has been notched up to a very good individual candidate and people have called it a personal victory for Labour's candidate who is Kim Ledbetter. This was her victory speech delivered at around 6am this morning. I want to say a huge thank you to the police who sadly I have needed more than ever over the last few weeks and I want to say a huge thank you to the whole Labour Party team for the hours and the time and the commitment they've put in to supporting me and helping me to get to this fantastic result this evening. Well done for keeping up everybody. Um, there's way too many people to mention by name, but I do want to refer to my family and my friends who, without them, I could have not got through the last five years, never mind the last five weeks. My amazing parents and my wonderful partner. And I want to give a special shout out to my niece and nephew, who I cannot wait to hug as soon as I see them. So her niece and nephew there, who she gave a special shout out to, are of course the children of Joe Cox, who's Kim Ledbetter's sister, who was murdered in the constituency by a Nazi. So Kid Ledbetter standing there was quite powerful in itself. She also there mentioned um, the police presence that she had throughout some of the campaign. There had been some ugly scenes. Last weekend, there were some Labour canvassers who were attacked. Um, so on many fronts, um, she has basically she's done well to come through this and come out victorious. While most people agree it was a personal victory, the extent to which this was something that, that Keir Starmer can clock up to his um, leadership is a bit more controversial. Of course, he was trying to put forward the idea that this was a win for Labour. This is a victory of hope over division. It is a start. Labour is back. Labour is back. That battle that went on here between decency and honesty and bringing people together and division manipulation, misinformation, lies, 
that battle isn't just in Batley and Spain. That is the battle of modern politics. And the Labour Party is in that battle. We're going to fight all the way, every inch of the way, and we're going to win that battle. We've got to fight that. But Labour is back. This is just the start. I want many more days like this. Labour is coming home. So Labour is coming home was last used by Tony Blair in 1996. We'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not Keir Starmer will like that association. You heard there Keir Starmer suggest that the issues that were the focus of this election, so in his words, you know, integrity, disinformation, Obviously, he was, I suppose, trying to point disparagingly at uh, George Galloway in those comments, could also be applied on the national level. He's saying these are the issues that Labour can go into a general election with and win. I presume he wanted some of the audience there to think about Boris Johnson when he was talking about dishonesty, etc. So were the votes or were the was the result in Batley and Spence something that should give Labour cause for confidence when it comes to nationwide elections. There's some conflicting ideas here. So first of all, let's show you a graph, which is the changing vote share in Batley and Spen for Labour. And what you can see here is that whilst Labour did hold the seat potentially against the odds, they did still score the worst vote share they have since 1983 at least. However, as I've suggested, Given that George Galloway got 22% of the vote, the fact that they held their vote together to the degree they did is still, I think, to some degree impressive. I want to bring you in now, Aaron. What what do you think? How should we interpret this win for Labour? I really disagree with everything you just said, Michael. The the idea that, oh, well, Galloway got this huge vote, and he he did, he got 20% of the vote. And and let's be clear, winning 20% of the vote should have meant that Labour lost. That's what all the calculations were based on, right? I mean, personally, I I thought that was very plausible after going up there. And all other things being equal, the the Tory vote just had to stay still and they would win. Actually, their vote share went down. So the idea that Galloway is a one-off, he's this, you know, political operator par excellence. He ran in 2019, Michael, in West Bromwich. He got a terrible result. He ran in 2017 in Manchester Gorton. He got a terrible result. And so the idea that, you know, he's a sort of political, he ran in Scotland very recently. He got a terrible result. So, you know, George Galloway was a cipher for a set of political issues, which appeal particularly to a certain political audience, which, you know, isn't the majority in Batley and Spen, like it is, say, in Bradford West, Muslim voters, that is. But it's still a, it's a, still a big part of Labour's sort of uh, electoral block there. You know, yes, in this instance, it was George Galloway, but I think in other elections, those people, some of them at least, will go to the Greens or some might vote. And I also think George Galloway polarised things actually in a way that didn't help Labour. I think obviously him running was a a net detriment to Labour, but I don't think he just took Labour voters. I mean, my experience was he also did take up quite a few people who probably came from, you know, previously with the Woolen District Independents or previous Tory voters because he was talking about hyperlocal issues. Or maybe he was picking up, and I think, again, this this probably helped Labour, he probably picked up quite a few Labour voters who otherwise would have gone Tory, but then voted for him instead. So I don't buy the thing, well, this was just a one-off and, and you know, actually th- these numbers aren't as bad as they seem because George Galloway can't run in 650 constituencies. I think to go from 55% in 2017 to 35% now with such a good candidate, they've got a fantastic candidate, I think much better than Tracy Brabin, with such a hyper-local campaign, I think in itself is is quite dangerous. And look, the Tories didn't need Batley and Spend to, to win a majority of 80. You know, the fact we're even talking about this is obviously is obviously ludicrous. Mm-hmm. If you have the swing, and you're absolutely right, Michael, the swing sort of 
transposed onto a national level, I think that's clearly not going to happen. But let's just say it did. It's a 2.9% swing. And that would mean, I think, a Tory majority of, which was what happened in Batley and Spen because of George Galloway principally, that would mean a Tory majority of 230. Halve that, 1.45% swing. And I think you still get a majority of around 100. Now you say, well, Galloway isn't running in every seat, as we've already mentioned. But the Greens didn't run. The Lib Dems got, I think, 2 3%. Uh, so I think, and actually look at a lot of little independent parties, the English Democrats, um, I think even UKIP ran a few sort of smaller right-wing parties, probably also stopped the Tories winning this. So, you know, I, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And I also think the reasons why Kim Ledbetter won, Ledbetter won, are entirely at odds with the election campaign that Labour just ran in, in May. In May, it was all about Keir Starmer, his face, his name, national political issues. Kim Ledbetter won by not having Keir Starmer's name on anything, by not having Labour on any of her literature, even in her Twitter bio right now. It doesn't say Labour MP, it says MP. And so I think you've seen like a complete converse of what Starmer's gurus thought was the winning formula. They thought it was credibility, national politician, PMQs. Actually, it turns out it's a hyper-local candidate very much rooted in her community, which brought this home for Labour. And I think that's really going to challenge their assumptions about what they need to do. And if it hasn't, if they think that Keir was the reason why they won this, then I think there's probably many more bad days ahead for Labour. Well, I think to put forward their argument, I think Jeremy Corbyn obviously wouldn't, would, I mean, he did win Batley and Spen in a much more obvious way and with a stronger result. And I think that's because you wouldn't have a George Galloway type figure running to his left. At the same time, what Keir Starmer can say after this election result is that Labour clearly picked up a fair few Tory votes. The maths doesn't really add up. If not, let's actually bring up this uh, this graphic we've got of, of I don't recent think that's necessarily true. Well, well, so Galloway got 22% of the vote. Labour's vote share dropped by only 7.5%. Now, do you think that most of, do you think the majority of George Galloway's vote came from people who weren't previous Labour voters? I mean, that seems kind of implausible to me, given no, his I whole campaign was six, to appeal to core Labour yeah. voters. Michael, well, the Tory vote went down like something like 1.7%, right? That's the Tory vote. It mm -hmm. is, you can, well, you can see it from the, the graph. It stayed relatively static. I mean, obviously, it should have gone up if they wanted to win, but it stayed relatively static. In 2019, there were 6,000 people who voted for the local independent candidate. And, you know, there was a young woman who I spoke to who stood as an independent in the local elections in May, winning 600 votes as an independent. She was campaigning for Galloway. So the idea that none of those people voted Galloway who were previously, you Wouldn't know, voted to be none of those. I think Doesn't it's need to be none of those. Is that, no, I think it's if twenty-two percent like of the vote went to George Galloway and Labour only fell by seven point five percent. I mean, don't you think at least half of George Galloway's vote would have been Labour voters? Probably, yeah. It only has Probably. to be at least half for Labour to be picking up voters from elsewhere. I know. I think Labour picked up voters. I think they probably picked up some Tory votes, but I think they also picked up these independent voters, right? I think some went to the Tories, some went to Galloway, some went to Labour, uh, and I think that's so often the case with sort of hyper-local independent politics. It's kind of difficult to map. I think also many Lib Dems gave their vote to, to Labour, who probably probably you know didn't you know the last time round, or many Greens. Mm. I, I think it's a super complex thing, and I, you know that I was only there for two days, Michael, so I can only talk about my personal experience. But, but Galloway was actually drawing, he was drawing votes from a, a range of places, and at the same time, you know, Labour were holding on to their Muslim vote in certain in certain areas, right? So I I I, I I'm really not so sure, you know. I I, I think. I do I think we're underestimating the extent to which local issues drove a lot of this. I really do. And I think that's the reason why Leadbeater winning is massive. 
is because she, she won despite a poor national leadership, but also people really, really, really don't like the local council there. So I think that's what makes her such a phenomenal success here. And I just wonder, is that really, you know, can that really be expanded to the national context? I don't know. I think the main point here is that even if it were expanded to the national context, Labour would still be losing because winning Batley and Spen isn't enough to win a general election. This this should not be a seat that's really in play at all. But I suppose in defence of Keir Starmer's strategy, he'd say, given those, and you accept that there presumably were a number of switches from the Conservatives to Labour, that the, the maths doesn't add up otherwise, even if that was primarily motivated by a good local candidate, that might not have happened if Keir Starmer was more a Jeremy Corbyn type figure. The fact that he is inoffensive to Conservatives, even if he doesn't inspire much passion among anyone else, yeah. puts this hyper-local candidate in a position where they can peel yeah. off Tory voters because Labour are not a scary political party. I, I totally buy that argument. I think right now that's the best argument for Keir Starmer. And that's the best argument for Keir Starmer. He's not going to enthuse anybody, but he's not going to... Well, he obviously does alienate some people, but he's not going to alienate as many people as Jeremy Corbyn or hopefully Boris Johnson the next time round. And he can allow local candidates to shine. But, you know, this isn't the only election we've seen this year, Michael. We've also got... Uh, what was going on, obviously, in Hartlepool. We've obviously got the local mm. elections. And so the idea that, oh, we wouldn't see this kind of swing from Labour to the Tories at a national level like we've just seen in Batley and Spen. I, mean, I, I think that's probably right, but there's no evidence from this year to suggest that. You know, all the evidence suggests so far this year, if there was an election, say, in September, that that's precisely what would happen. Personally, I don't think it would happen in 2023, but if you look, for instance, at the polling for, um, for Keir Starmer versus Boris Johnson in Batley and Spen, you know, Boris Johnson has something like a 20, 30 point lead over Keir Starmer amongst voters in Batley and Spen. Boris Johnson over Keir Starmer. So I, I, I buy the argument that Keir Starmer is less off-putting to certain voters, but he was being sold as this asset, right? You know, Labour, if they're attached to Keir Starmer, then that's really good for Labour. Well, actually, all the data shows us from Batley and Spen, but also nationally, he's really underperforming Boris Johnson. So I, 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 I buy some of your argument, not all of it. I mean, I think we agree that the weight of evidence that we've seen all of this year, if we include Hartlepool, if we include Cheshire and Amersham, it's not that Keir Starmer is about to win a majority in some kind of national election. I just think that it would be potentially a mistake to underestimate the extent to which this was actually quite an achievement by Labour to retain this seat when George Galloway got 22%. As you can say, maybe those votes will go to a different party in a general election. But I do think there is something about by-elections as well, where people are, are quite happy to, to cast a protest vote and often that support does peel back in in a general. Obviously, Keir Starmer, we all agree, would have to come up with some policies to make people want to do that. I mean, also, having having been there, and I mean, this is something that was repeated by everybody who went there, it was bizarre. There was no presence with the Tories. There were barely canvassing. There were barely any posters. If, if you weren't if you weren't aware of them being the favourites, you would have thought it was a two-horse race between Labour and, and, uh, and George Galloway. It was surreal. And so constantly hearing, and I wonder to what extent was that also the case in Hartlepool? You know, I think the Tories would have won Hartlepool anyway, but I think with a decent local candidate, uh, if the literature had been more sort of focused on local issues and so on, like in Batley and Spen, I think Labour would have maybe lost that by a couple of thousand, right? Not 7,000. I mean, I think Hartlepool is basically a how-to of what not to do for the Labour Party going forward. And I think that's what Batley and Spen kind of shows you. And I'd finish with this, Michael. You know, we did see this as well with Jeremy Corbyn. Labour did quite well in by-elections with Jeremy Corbyn. The, the, the sort of outstanding example of failure was, was Copeland. But this kind of compounds the point because Copeland's this huge rural constituency and actually, when you have sort of smaller constituencies where people can get around, whether it was Stoke Central, whether it was Peterborough, whether it was Oldham, Labour did really well because you can just get in hundreds of activists, which is what happened over the uh, over the last sort of 72 hours of this campaign. I think on the day itself, several hundred people in the constituency. 
that's phenomenal. Momentum were very good at that. But as we saw in 2019, that in a general election, when you've got to do it in 650 seats, that's a different proposition. So again, the thing that got Labour, or one of the things that got Labour over the line here, this massive canvassing operation on the ground over 72 hours, that, that, that isn't necessarily in play to the same extent in a general. Again, that asks questions. And again, you know, Keir Starmer's pitch was, we don't need a mass movement. We need a guy on the telly who looks prime ministerial. Well, actually, no, the thing that got you guys over the line was people on the ground canvassing your vote. Think about it. Let's look in more detail at the candidate. Labour's win in Batley and Spen was very much a personal victory for Kim Leadbeater. Leadbeater has a powerful backstory as the sister of murdered MP Joe Cox and is a lifelong resident of the constituency. It was a big team decision. It was a big family decision. Um, but, you know, mum and dad have seen the work that I've done through the foundation. They've seen the network that I've got across our local area and how powerful that can be. And a way to build on that work is by being our MP. And they were very, very supportive of that. And they always said as well, you know, if you don't do it, you might regret not going for it, you know, whatever, whatever happens. Um, and yeah, it was a team decision. And it's very emotional for us as a family, of course it is. Um, but listen, if I can be half the MP that Joe was, then I'll be very, very happy and very, very proud of that. She seems like an incredibly likable person. You can see why she, she's got the kind of story that would, would work well in that kind of race. Something I hadn't realised actually before listening to that interview or hadn't really considered was the extent to which the Joe Cox Foundation didn't just mean she can say, oh, by the way, I'm Joe Cox's sister, but that she had existing networks in the constituency by working with that group. That makes a lot more sense when it comes to how she could have peeled off um, potential Tory voters um, in the constituency. As we've said, very much a local campaign that is a line that's being repeated by Kim Leadbeater. Um, and she was she was very clear now speaking to the BBC that she put her victory down to those local issues. The focus of the campaign was very much listening to local people and speaking to local people. And sometimes national issues came up. But I have to be honest, the vast majority of conversations were about very local issues. People want to feel that they've got an MP who cares about this community. You know, and as someone who's lived here their whole life, and has lived in various different places across the constituency. I think that's where the connection came from during the campaign. You know, the fact that I was local. So, so national stuff plays a part, but for me, this really was about the local issues that people care about. And they want someone they can trust and put their faith in going forward. And I think the fact that I'm born and bred here has been really important to people. Well, I understand that point. I mean, the question was though about Keir Starmer, particularly whether or not he was an asset as your leader as you were campaigning, as you were talking to people, would that be a fair description or would you not use that description? I think, like I say, most of the conversations weren't about the Labour leadership. Most of the conversations were about people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, I think that's, that's probably all I can say, really. Very reluctant to make any comment at all, actually, on the leadership of Keir Starmer. She was asked whether he was an asset and she essentially ignored the question. Um, as we've already shown you, Keir Starmer was in the constituency today. He was obviously trying to connect the win to issues which the Labour Party are fighting on, on a more national level. Let's take a look at what he had to say. I think that people are getting fed up with the politics of misinformation, half-truths, untruths, um, and division. And what they want is what Kim can give them, which is positivity, which is bringing communities together. She's of her community. She's for her community. It's about decency and integrity. 
versus misinformation, manipulation, lies and half-truths. And that is, that's been the battle here in Batley and Spen, but it is the wider battle of modern politics. But this um, is, has been a very, very positive campaign against a wall of hostility and poison from other candidates. So you heard there, Keir Starmer saying this was about decency and integrity versus misinformation. Now, if Keir Starmer has tried to put himself forward as anything, it is someone who is supposedly decent and has integrity. He's constantly trying to sort of position himself as the honest um, version of Boris Johnson, or not really the honest version of Boris Johnson, but someone who is much more honest than Boris Johnson. Obviously, he says it too much and, and doesn't follow it through enough. You know, do you think that Keir Starmer is really clutching at straws there by trying to draw a connection between this victory for Kim Ledbetter and the issues that he say are, are shaping <clears throat> the national conversation? I do think that the Matt Hancock story probably did help get Labour over the line. I do believe that. I mean, I'm not, you know, anybody who follows me on Twitter probably saw me three or four days ago. People in Batley Spend don't know who Matt Hancock is. I mean, that's generally true. But when you've got when you've got a margin here of 300, I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's perfectly plausible that, you know, 150 people are kind of swayed by the sort of general sense in the final week. And that's probably a part of it. Um, I don't think it's about truth versus lies. I mean, for me, when he's talking about this stuff, it's just, a, it's a, what he's doing with this kind of rhetoric, Michael, is it's effectively offering cover for a vacuum on policy. Labour have nothing to say about anything. So they have to talk about lies and truth and division manipulation. By the way, Michael, he, he talks too much. He says too many words. It's a TV clip. You know, I don't know who the hell he's getting his media training from, but he still sounds like a lawyer. He's using three, four syllable words. He's, it sounds like he's trying to pack in as many words as he can into the clip. Just say a really simple, meaningful thing, right? Take a lesson from Kim Leadbeater, right? He he sounds well off the pace in terms of what he's doing. Um, and so I don't really agree with either the form or the content. I don't agree with the general argument. Labour, what 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 George Galloway was doing in, in Batley and Spend, Labour have done before. And I, I'm not just I'm not just saying that. They've done worse. Phil Woolas in, in 2010 did worse. And when he was found out, you had all the grandees in the Labour Party. You had Gordon Brown, you had Harriet Harman saying that, you know, oh, he shouldn't be expelled from the Labour Party. So I don't buy this argument that Labour's about decency and honesty and, and you know, these other people are nasty and bad. I think that that tends, and it, look, it can be true in a particular instance, but I, I really think that in politics, that tends to be the sort of refuge of, of somebody who's really not got much of substance to offer. And right now, the Tories have got a lot to offer. They've got the vaccine program to offer. They deliver Brexit. You might think they've got nothing to do with the vaccine program. You might not like Brexit, but they're really substantial. And I think Labour talking about truth and you know honesty and integrity. I mean, okay, there are a bunch of words, but like you always say, Michael, show don't tell. I suppose now we've brought up the Tories. They did lose vote share. And I mean, they were going into this election hoping that the 12% that voted for the independents last time around, so it was an independent who who was a former UKIP member. So one would assume that those voters would more naturally go to the Conservatives. They were hoping to mop up those votes. Actually, their vote share fell. So, so what is your analysis, given that you're saying that the Tories do have quite a lot to say for themselves at the moment? Yeah. Why didn't they manage to make any gains at all in this constituency? It's fascinating, isn't it? I think... My sense was that they felt as soon as Galloway ran, they didn't need to do anything. They could just kind of turn up. So Ryan Stevenson, the candidate, did barely any media, very little canvassing. There wasn't like a big, you know, on you know, on the doorstep kind of campaign over the final seven days. 
I find that kind of puzzling, Michael. And again, you know, we probably need to get a Tory insider on the show to explain that. So it's a similar dynamic to, to Cheshire and Amersham. It's a similar dynamic to what happened last night in another election um, in the constituency of Dominic Raab. And the Tories right now, you know, they're doing really well in some places like the Northeast with Hartlepool uh, or with Ben Houchen as Tees Valley mayor. But it does feel like their vote is actually quite soft in many places. Um, and this kind of, you know, this capacious label of the Red Wall, Batley's Men is not the Red Wall, it was Tory until 1997. Um, I, I think it's not necessarily that helpful for them. Their vote feels really soft in a bunch of places. Uh, and, you know, and at the same time, simultaneously, it, it's hardening in others. So we'll see. But also, it isn't, it's just not, it's not normal, uh, Michael, for a, for a government to, to win by-elections. This is one of those platitudes that we heard all night and all week, uh, but it's true. And so for them to have... For them to have still got the vote they got in a by-election is still is still very very irregular. It's still very unusual. You take away outliers like Copeland under Corbyn or Hartlepool under Keir Starmer, it's still an extraordinary result for the Tories. So I mean that would be my answer to your to your point about well if these things are so popular with the public why didn't they win this seat? You don't win generally speaking governments don't win by-elections. So I, I don't think that the the vote here for them um, was was sort of indicative of people falling out of love with them. Potentially, I think they could still win this in a general. I don't think it's a write-off. I think Kim Ledbetter is actually good enough to increase her majority, but I think they could still win it in a, in a, in a general election. So I'm not so sure. But what, what I think it probably does mean is that major realignment we saw in 2019, that maybe that's, that's still not finished. I think it probably isn't. I do think that we could see a lot of changes come the next general election. And, and they don't have to redound to the benefit of the Labour Party, right? I mean, the Lib Dems could make major gains. The Greens could make major gains. Labour could make major gains and elsewhere. And that's what we've seen, actually, in these three by-elections, right? We saw the Lib Dems pick up Cheshire and Amersham. Then last night, there were elections in, in London, including Islington. The Greens did phenomenally well. Elsewhere, you know, I think the Tories picked up something. The Lib Dems did phenomenally well. So I think the big worry for Labour is, Michael, that come the next general election, 2023-2024, they are seeing their vote, which is 32% of the last general election. They're seeing that nibbled from the right, and that will continue to happen a little bit. And I think that will happen, uh, but also from the left with the Greens and arguably from the centre, whatever that means, from the Lib Dems. I don't think it will. I think primarily the Greens, and I think it will be the Tories. And, th and that's not going away, and I think that's kind of confirmed by what we saw in Batley and Spen. Relevant there would be, can the Greens attract, for example, ethnic minority voters? Because at the moment, I mean, the Greens have quite a specific support base. I don't think they really could stand in for George Galloway in terms of what he did in this, in some in this seats. general election. There is, in some seats, yeah, right? In some I seats, mean, in, from, from in, the left. In Sheffield, Bristol West, maybe Norwich. But I, no, I agree with you. Maybe maximum five. Isle of Wight is going to have a second seat. Maybe yeah. five or six seats. Oh, I agree with you, Michael. But the point is, you know, Labour... Labour needs to be picking up dozens, at least, if, I mean, they're not going to form a majority in the next election, but they need to at least be picking up dozens of seats. And so the possibility of actually being vulnerable to their left in five or six seats, I mean, that might not sound particularly, you know, it might sound insignificant, but in 2015, when, when Ed Miliband lost to, to Cameron, there were 15, 16 seats where the difference between Labour and the Tories was the Green vote. And so, you know, that, that again, that is a variable and, uh, you know, it can't be taken for granted. One of the great achievements of Corbyn, and we saw it with 2017, was he just destroyed, he, he just destroyed the Green and Lib Dem vote. And a lot of it went to him. And returning to a point we talked about earlier, yes, he was very unpopular with some people. So, OK, yeah, he got this record in recent times sort of increase. I think the biggest increase in, sh uh, increase in share of the votes is 1945 in 2017. And I agree that creates a sort of a, a countercurrent, which increased Theresa May's vote. And that's the sort of best argument for Keir Starmer. Well, he won't do that. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like Keir Starmer right now 
has a response to that nibbling of the vote, not just from the Tories, but also from the Greens, also from the Lib Dems. You know, I, I, I still think they haven't really got a message or a set of policies to deal with that. And that's why they turn to this, this default of talking about morality and it kind of feels like the kind of Trump-Bannon stuff they're leaning into. And I, I don't know, it doesn't feel right for the UK context. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it wouldn't really work anywhere else. You could impose that or superimpose that on that particular battle between George Galloway and Kim Ledbetter, whose sister had been murdered in the constituency. You know, th this idea of sort of like decency being an important issue in a general election, sorry, in a in a by-election right there. You know, as you say, I think probably there were a lot of local issues coming into this as well, but you can at least see that as a variable, whereas Boris Johnson isn't George Galloway and that backstory won't apply anywhere else. So it, it does seem like it would be difficult to to rely on to to win on a national level. There was one reveal today, um, a bit of information or at least a briefing about her that we didn't know before. So this is a tweet from Paul War from the Huffington Post. Um, so he tweeted this morning, new MP Kim Ledbetter left Labour Party under Corbyn because of Corbyn. Keir Starmer actively recruited her back, I understand. And you can imagine why this would have been briefed. It's to say, look, this is a huge break with Jeremy Corbyn. This is someone who disliked him so much, she left the Labour Party because of it. And also the fact that she stood in the seat, that's a personal victory because um, Keir Starmer got her to do it. So a personal victory for Keir Starmer, sorry, because Keir Starmer got her to stand in that role. Now, that would be a helpful story. Might be true. I don't know. It does contradict, though, what was written earlier or a couple of months ago, earlier in the campaign. So in an article on the Yorkshire Live website in May, there had been no mention of her leaving because of Corbyn. And back then it was actually reported she'd left uh, left the Labour Party because she'd taken up an apolitical role at the Joe Cox Foundation. So an alternate explanation was put forward. We can go to a quote from that piece. A source close to Leadbeater told the Yorkshire Live, Kim has always been Labour through and through. In the wake of Joe's murder, she felt disengaged from politics. It was politics that took Joe away from her. After that, she threw all her energies into the foundation. And as a charity, it is not party political at all. Kim is quite a moral person and she didn't feel she could continue being a member. Most people understand that. So there's a couple of interpretations here. Maybe, you know, maybe she told one friend something and she told another friend another. Maybe she did leave because of Jeremy Corbyn, but she didn't want to make that public before the election campaign because she wanted to put herself forward as, as you know, an apolitical personal candidate who just cares about local issues. Or maybe an ally of Keir Starmer has, you know, emphasized one aspect of this after the event where she won because Keir Starmer wanted to bask in the glory and use this as another stick to bash Jeremy Corbyn with. All of those seem somewhat plausible to me. Yeah, it, it, I mean, if it is if it is a Starmer ally doing that and using her as a, uh, even if it's true, I mean, I think that's for her to say. Do you not think? I mean, I don't think it's for somebody else to say. I don't think it's for the leader's office to brief or for an outrider for Starmer to brief. I think that's, they shouldn't start ventriloquizing this woman after she's been a Labour MP for less than 12 hours. I think that's pretty appalling, actually. It doesn't really bode well for their genre of leadership, does it? I think secondly, <clears throat> Her pitch, again, going back to why I led B to one and why that may not be good for Labour, is that, you know, it was about hyper-local politics and almost an aversion to party politics. You know, I'm the best candidate because I'm from here. And like I said, in her literature, there was no mention of Labour, no mention of Starmer. In her Twitter bio now, there's no mention of Labour. Um, in the video we talked about earlier, there's no mention of Starmer. This isn't me attacking Starmer. I think the, I think the, 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 the sort of idea is that people don't really like party politics. That may be true, but I just wonder the extent to which that's useful or helpful for uh, 
a, a political compass, a set of ideas, a labor movement where you believe in collective action, where you believe in solidarity. So I think, I think if they did hide it, and I think it's perfectly wise to do that, looking at it objectively, obviously I don't agree with her doing it, but I, I can understand why, because they were trying to make her seem like the local candidate, Joe Cox's sister, and kind of beyond party politics. Because that, that again, is the zeitgeist. You know, even on her literature, we talked about, you know, Labour not being there, Stum not being there. The, even the colours of her leaflets were like pink and purple. They weren't red, you know. And, and that's not new. I mean, people were saying, oh, God, this is terrible. Labour, Labour MPs on the right, on the left, on the centre have been doing that for a while because people actually have a, they feel an affinity to somebody they view as a local champion rather than as a member of a political party. And, and that is a thing, right? Um, and I, again, I, just, I, I question the extent to which Labour can do that in a general election. Of course, the counter-argument is, well, the Tories did it, right? The Tories did it in, uh, in 2019. They had, they had a guy who went to Eton and who went to Oxford posing as an anti-establishment candidate. They had people who are a part of a party which is enthralled to big business, you know, posing as these tribunes of the oppressed and the working class. So, I mean, it's, it's plausible, but, you know, I, I, I suspect it probably isn't. You know, the idea that you're going to stand 350 people in, in you know, seats you may be able to win on the back of, you know, anti-politics and local issues in a in a local election. I think you can do that in a general, somewhat tougher. Maybe Labour will get the wrong way around because, of course, in the local elections in May, it was all about national issues. Maybe at the general election, Keir Starmer will be talking about dog shit and, and poor roads. You said the Tories did it, but they didn't really fight the last general election on local issues, did they? I mean, they had Boris Johnson front and centre everywhere because they had a really popular leader. So uh, the fact Keir Starmer isn't on the leaflets is because he is very unpopular at the moment. I mean, it's the same reason that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't on the leaflets, is that he didn't poll particularly well. Um, obviously, he inspired some enthusiastic support to a greater degree than Keir Starmer ever did. And why I liked him is because he stood for something and Keir Starmer doesn't. But neither of them would have appeared on leaflets when Boris Johnson does. Will Keir Starmer be able to turn that around between now and whenever the next election comes up? Who knows? Kim Leadbeater's narrow victory in Batley and Spen will be an excuse for many in Starmer's circle to attempt to further marginalise the left of the party. That will apply more than anyone to Peter Mandelson, who spoke to Sky News to comment on the by-election result. So how come Labour only won by 323 votes? Uh, because, as I've explained to you, we've had a very bad 10 years. We, we've been on a very negative trajectory. So why you know, do you feel that Keir Starmer is the right man to take you out of that? Yes, I do. Uh, I do. If, if he were allowed to lead, unfortunately, there are people uh, in, the, in the party. There were Corbynite elements on the left of the party who were watching with... Glee as George Galloway entered the entered the race in Batley and Spen and announced that his sort of task was to was to defeat uh, Keir Starmer. I mean, frankly, those people should have been busy campaigning in Batley and Spen rather than conspiring in smoke-filled uh, rooms to undermine him uh, and to launch a leadership challenge against him. Now, I think that Keir Starmer, yes, you know, it's been an extraordinarily difficult year. For him. It's been a, the most abnormal year in politics I can remember in my life, but we are emerging from it. And that's the chance. That's the opportunity for Keir Starmer now. And that was Peter Mandelson complaining about people having conversations in smoke-filled rooms about potential leadership contests instead of fighting for the Labour Party to win. Now, 
you might remember that when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, obviously everyone's got incredibly short memories now. Peter Mandelson said he woke up every single day and tried to undermine Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Now, he didn't say, I wake up every day and try and get the, the Labour Party elected. No, he says, I wake up every day trying to undermine the leader of the Labour Party. So when he says, oh, Keir Starmer, he needs to have a chance to lead, you know, you uh, that could not be more disingenuous. You know, that is just, and I, I think the fact he's not called out on that is just, is, is just embarrassing. He hasn't been in at top level politics for 10 years. And yet he's now, he's now on Radio 4, Sky News, that's, you know, the Today programme. He's become like a real outrider for Starmer. And he's talking there from his home in Wiltshire, his multi-million pound home in Wiltshire, presumably. You know, well, it's a good thing he wasn't in his Notting Hill, you know, home. And this is the guy, Michael, it's important to remember. People say, well, the Blairites got it so right in the 1990s and Mandelson was there. First of all, Peter Mandelson was the head of communications for the 1987 general election, which was a disaster for Labour. Secondly, he was a very senior figure in the 2010 general election for Labour, which was a disaster. So the idea that this guy has the golden touch, he knows what he's doing. He was the MP for Hartlepool for, for, for a very long time, and Labour just lost it by 7,000 votes. What does, that, what does that tell you about people's memories of Peter Mandelson as MP for Hartlepool? Uh, I, I also think, to finish with this, Michael, it says so much about our media that Peter Mandelson is now this go-to guy. Nobody elected him when he was in the cabinet under Gordon Brown. He doesn't have any discernible talents apart from sort of slagging people off and undermining various people. He's never accomplished anything. I mean, he was an MP, but his 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 job for New Labour wasn't, okay, we're going to work on this policy, get it implemented. It was about attacking the left. I, I don't quite understand where this kind of, this ardour from the media comes from. At least with Alastair Campbell, he was a top journalist. He went to do comms for, for, for Tony Blair. You, you can see what he excelled at. Peter Mandelson, he was a hanger-on. He was there before Blair in 87. He was there after in 2010. And that's what he got when he got found out. It would suggest he's not that good at politics. Uh, and yet he's here sort of still talking garbage. He, without being rude, and it's, there's no reason to be ageist about this, but the guy is 67. He has been in politics for 35 years. And, and I, I do feel like he still thinks that we're talking about the political realities of the late 1980s. Maybe, just maybe, if you have a multi-million pound home in West London, if you've been on a, a boat with a Russian billionaire oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, right? If you were friends with Jeffrey Epstein, maybe you don't know what is driving the common woman and man in this country. Maybe. It's just a thought. I could be wrong. And maybe the media should take that into account when they think, well, let's go to Peter Mandelson. Let's see him ventriloquize the working class voters of this country. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Uh, hopefully, Michael, organizations like Navarro Media can stop it happening in 2024. This, like you say, this is one of the things that really riles me. At least Keir Sturm was a director of public prosecutions. He's a successful person in his own right. He's accomplished things. Mandelson is a proper political bag carrier. Can't stand the man. I think that was very well put. I'm sure that will bring all of our audience together, wherever they stand on this particular by-election. One unpleasant note in the Batley and Spent by-election was the attempt by centrists in the Labour Party and in the media to blame an expected defeat for Kim Leadbeater on the supposed bigotries of Muslim voters. Now, that included a senior Labour source telling Dan Hodges that Muslims were abandoning Labour because they'd been too tough on anti-Semitism, and numerous other commentators claiming that homophobia among Muslims would hand victory for 
the Tories. It was a narrative with little evidence and which bred, fed into directly, Islamophobia. Now, unfortunately, Labour's surprise win in the, sit- in the seat didn't put the narrative to bed. So Eleanor Correa, after the result came in, tweeted, Labour Batley campaign source says, basically built a new electoral coalition in six weeks, lost the Conservative Muslim vote over gay rights in Palestine and won back a lot of 2019 Tory voters. This result shows we're reconnecting with the wider electorate again. Now, there's all sorts wrong with that statement. Um, They're building a new electoral coalition without the problematic Muslims and they're reconnecting with the wider electorate. I mean, what's going on there? More obviously, I think, they say lost the conservative Muslim vote over gay rights in Palestine. Now, from everyone I've spoken to who's been in the constituency, I haven't. Muslim voters were talking a lot more about Palestine than they were about gay rights. And also, why is someone who cares about Palestine conservative? Now, if, if, if you happen to be a Muslim who cares about Palestine, you're suddenly a conservative voter, you know, a small C conservative voter. I mean, it seems wrong as well as being incredibly disrespectful. Now, disappointingly, this narrative was also fed by Paul Mason, who purports to sit on the left of the party. So his analysis of the election result in the New Statesman included the following. Galloway's vote of 8,264 was driven by a mixture of the youthful radicalism that put tens of thousands of young Muslims on the street during the latest Gaza atrocities and the homophobia and anti-feminism of their parents. Now, again, these are such sweeping statements with no evidence. Why does he say only young Muslims care about Palestine? And why are all Muslim parents assumed to be homophobic and anti-feminist? And not only are they homophobic and anti-feminist, that's what's driving their votes in general elections instead of local services, instead of the issues that affect them on on day-to-day life. I'm not convinced that homophobia has really motivated many voters in this country in the past 30 years. Right. So to to make such a sweeping statement that basically if you're over 50, if you're Muslim and if you voted for George Galloway, it's because you're a homophobe or an anti-feminist. I'm not sure why that's being written by someone purporting to be on the Labour left and published in a supposedly left wing journal. I mean, Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, I thought obviously this would have gone into overdrive if Labour had lost. If Labour had lost this seat, we would have been seeing loads and loads of people say, oh, this is because of the bigoted Muslims. But even though Labour held on to the seat, we're still hearing, oh, the reason they didn't win it by as much as they would have was because of the bigoted Muslims. And by the way, we've now managed to get some white Tory voters who we're more comfortable with. Whippy. I mean, the thing about homophobia as well, Michael, 85% of Muslims voted for Labour in the 2017 general election. You know, huge majorities of Muslims voted Fred Miliband in 2015, Corbyn in 2017, 2019, I believe uh, Gordon Brown in 2010. I mean, the trend has been towards Labour over the years, but still, you know, big majorities. I mean, it's just ridiculous. What? So they were they were pro LGBT rights right until this by election, and then that magically changed. And it's just Muslims in Batley and Spen who are who are who are homophobes and anti-feminists, and that's why they're now voting against the Labour Party. I mean, it's 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 not just wrong and absurd. I I genuinely worry for for Paul Mason as a as a as an intellectual. I mean, that's it's just so pathetically wrong. I think something's gone very very badly, sort of, there's a big malfunctioning going on in terms of his critical faculties when it comes to sort of what's going on, what's going on. I, I just find it bizarre. You don't even need to have gone to Batley and Spend, Michael. You just need to look at Wikipedia and you need to look at the numbers uh, in terms of the, you know, the Muslim vote saved Labour in a lot of Red Wall seats in 2019, significantly. 
I mean, we could talk about why. You know, you shouldn't, oh, you shouldn't talk about the Muslim vote. Well, okay, fine. Demographically, we're breaking it down. That That's what it was. And so, I mean, it's just, it's just really, uh, you know, it's really thick. It's really, it's a really stupid thing to say. I don't know. I mean, is there any other way, other way of putting it without being, you know, I mean, that, that is rude, but without being excessively rude, it's a really thick thing to say. And it's the same thing as when people say, oh, you know, the, the Muslim vote in this country, they're anti-Semites. Well, they vote in overwhelming numbers for Ed Miliband in 20, 2015. He would have been a Jewish prime minister. Again, I, I just don't really understand the arguments being made here. It's, it's, they aren't arguments, Michael. That's the point. This is just, it's an excuse for prejudice and racism. That's, that's all it is. Um, and the idea that, oh, the young cared about Palestine, but older voters don't care about Palestine. I mean, my experience in Batley and Spen was, you know, people in, in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s, 50s, 60s, all talking about Palestine. You know, I saw a three-year-old girl when I was canvassing and she was singing George Galloway, Free Palestine. And then I saw a mufti in his 60s talking about Palestine. So, you know, that that spans the entire community. Um, and and anti-feminism, and I, 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 I don't know where he gets these ideas, Michael. I don't know where he gets these ideas. I think he's gone very, something gone very badly wrong. You know, he was attacking Rebecca Long Bailey for her Catholicism not long ago. So at least he's equal opportunities in terms of, in terms of his religious bigotry, I suppose. That's one, that's one positive. Ashley Pringle has given a £20 super chat saying for Aaron's forensic demolition of Mandelson. I think you've just done a fairly forensic, um, one of Paul Mason's comments this morning as well. George Galloway's 22% in the Batley and Spen by-election was not a bad result for a political outsider. However, it wasn't enough to achieve his goal of beating Labour, which he was very confident he would do just two weeks ago. Let me break it to you gently. Labour are going to be third in this by-election. Oh, they actually, to say that decisively now, but 100% Labour are coming third. 100%. I'll eat my hat in your presence. I'll eat my hat if they're not third. Now, George Galloway hasn't taken the result very well. And this morning he went out in front of the TV cameras and he didn't eat his hat. Of course, it was George Galloway who came third, not the Labour Party. Instead of eating his headwear, he announced he will dispute the election result. On multiple grounds, we will apply to the courts for this election result to be set aside. You'll be hearing much more of this from me directly from the horse's mouth over the next hours and days. Now, I have to admit, I have no idea what that challenge is going to be on the basis on. Um, We'll talk about Galloway's campaign a bit. But first of all, Aaron, do you have any idea what that challenge is going to be based on? Yeah, there's a few things. So um, the, the majority is 323. As I understand it, the Tories asked for a recount, a full recount. They didn't get it. This is what I'm told by Galloway's election agent. And that is highly irregular. So they're disputing that. And also Galloway's, they're, they're claiming that on election day, Galloway's campaign literature was ripped down by the council. Again, this is what I'm told by the election agent. They're disputing that. <clears throat> that, isn't, um, that isn't being denied by the council. The council said that it contravened certain regulations with regards to the size of the lettering. Sounds very strange. I mean, ultimately, I don't think it, it meant Kim led better one. Um, but, you know, I mean, if that's, if that's an issue, they should, you know, obviously feel free to raise it. Any party should. So that's it, really. It was the it was the count, and then it was um, the posters, <clears throat> excuse me, on the final days. And then finally, actually, they also had a mail-out, which they used through Royal Mail, a leaflet mail-out, which was never delivered. And they're claiming sort of issues there with the Royal Mail, you know, arguably perhaps the CWU, I don't know, Postal Workers' Union. Uh, but there, there were, so there are a few incidents where they feel like they were impeded. Oh, and also at the, at the start of the campaign, they were given corrupted data, 
in terms of uh, you know electoral rolls and so on. Again, I don't know if any of this is true. This is just what I'm being relayed by the um, the election agent for George Calloway. I mean, none of it also sounds significant enough to just overturn the election result. Because also, I mean, George Galloway got 22%. It wasn't particularly close to to winning. So all of those would have had to have, uh, you know, led to, without those supposed impediments, getting 5,000 extra votes. So it does seem a bit like sour grapes going in front of the TV cameras and saying, we're going to dispute the election results. So it has to happen all over again. Obviously, it was a close election between Labour and the Tories. It wasn't a close election between George Galloway and anyone. I mean... I suppose they would argue, well, if we got an extra, if we got an extra, however many votes from Labour, then you know, and we're talking in the hundreds, then, um, then, then we would have won. I mean, I, I agree with you, Michael. I, I think, look, I think it's important to say if, if any party has an issue with an election, you know, I feel Al Gore in two thousand should have contested uh, mm. the sort of the, the decisions made around that election. I think some very strange things, improper things happened. Uh, I agree with you. I think if, on the other hand, it was the Tory candidate saying all this and it was this close, yeah, okay, that that would make a bit more sense. Um, however, it, it does sound like there are there are some there are some things that you know they are substantial. They're not completely fictitious, but it doesn't sound like they were anywhere near enough to to be enough. And in terms of the full recount, <clears throat> I mean, there were certain you know tranches of, of ballots which were, were checked over and over again. Uh, a full recount, my God, Michael! You know, we got the result at six a.m. I think if they'd done a full recount, we would have had to wait till God one two in the afternoon. Um, and look, if it's 50, 60 votes, okay. You know, like one of the Southampton seats in 2017, 300 votes. I mean, again, the Tory candidate was entitled to contest that, and apparently they did. So it's not just Galloway that has some issues here, but I, I think in all likelihood it's going nowhere, yes. What's your assessment of Galloway's campaign in general? Obviously, lots has been said about it, mainly negative, um, especially in the last week, people pointing at Galloway and saying that's one of the reasons the campaign was as divisive <clears throat> as it was. Well, I think for anybody to come from from nowhere, not even be acquainted with the constituency, and to get more than twenty percent is remarkable. I think that I, th- I think he knew he would get that, and I think that's why he said he would eat his hat if Labour didn't win. I think he thought. I think everybody thought if he gets twenty percent, Labour lose. I mean, the poll that was by Servation, the only real notable poll, had him on six percent, and even that was enough for for, for Labour to lose by six percent. Uh, so you look at that, and then you look at the final results. I mean, it's. It is a miracle. So even, you know, this is the strange thing about Butley and Spen. You've got people arguing both sides. Well, it's a terrible result for Labour. It's a fantastic result for Labour. It's a bit of both, you know. Within the broader context, it is a terrible result for Labour. They shouldn't, they should, they shouldn't be in this position. On the other hand, if you look at all the sort of the dynamic factors in play locally in the final week, it's, it was completely unexpected. I, I think Galloway, from what he told me, I interviewed him, I wrote a piece for NavarroMedia.com, that they, they, they plan to stand again and again and again in these kinds of seats. And, you know, in, in Batley and Spen, it wasn't enough. But if he had a seat turn up again like Bradford West with a larger Muslim population, I think Labour would have a problem. And, and, and Batley and Spen, you know, it was being sort of presented as a Bradford West, but it, it, it wasn't. You know, Br- Batley East, for instance, is, has a very high Muslim population, but it's still only, I think, 25% of the overall population of the constituency was, was Muslim. It's a primarily white constituency. Um, and it's a very it's a very complex constituency. You had people that were moved by Brexit. You had ex-Labour voters tempted by the Tories. You had Muslim voters turned off by Keir Starmer. You had Labour voters who don't like the local Labour council. Um, and so I think given all that, I think he navigated a lot of those issues really expertly. I mean, he's, he's clearly a very talented politician. And I'm sure this will be clipped up and they'll be taken out of context. But clearly, you, you don't win a by-election in Bradford West as a respect candidate if you're not good at politics in 2012. You, you don't win an election in, in, in Bowen Bethnal Green as a respect candidate in 2005. 
You know, he won twice as effectively, a, you know, a third party candidate. Um, and, you know, he, ca he came third here and he came second in Bradford West, it should be said, in 2015 when he was up for re-election. So he has a really strong record. He's clearly very good at what he does. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think they'll be gutted that they didn't make the difference and stop Labour winning. I think they'll be absolutely gutted. And I think they genuinely thought they could do that. However, I think they'll try and do it again. I think they'll try and do it again. I mean, if anything, maybe this will strengthen his resolve. I don't know. I mean, you know, he has a nice life. He has a TV show. He has a nice holiday home. He has a wife, children. I, mean, I personally would retire from politics, but it, it, it seems that he, you know, he's not going away anytime soon. Labour's win in Batley and Spen was a surprise and a relief to Keir Starmer. However, in the aftermath of the results, some of Britain's leading political journalists got a little bit carried away. Alex Wickham in the Politico Morning email wrote, Labour has held the West Yorkshire seat of Batley and Spen in a nail-biting race which should put to bed talk of a leadership challenge to Keir Starmer, at least for now. Kim Ledbetter won out over Tory hopeful Ryan Stevenson by just 323 votes after a bundle recount despite George Galloway picking up more than 8,000 votes. It's Labour's first by-election victory since Corby in 2012 and the Conservatives' second concurrent loss after the Chesham and Amersham one. Now, the standout thing there is it's Labour's first by-election victory since Corby in 2012. Now, that would be a big deal. That would seem like quite an exceptional event. The problem, it's not remotely true. So, in fact, Labour have won 12 by-elections since 2012. Nine of those were under Jeremy Corbyn. Alex Wickham's morning email, that gets sent out basically to lots of Westminster insiders. That's what it really um, positions itself as. It tells you what's going to be in the news today. I read it. I don't necessarily take it as gospel, but I do read it. Some people do take it as gospel, though, it seems, because that untruth was repeated by the Financial Times Whitehall correspondent Sebastian Payne on Twitter. Um, so Sebastian Payne tweeted, Labour should rightly celebrate a campaign victory, its first by-election victory in nine years. But Batley and Spen was ultimately about Kim Ledbetter, et cetera, et cetera. So you see there the claim, it's first by-election in nine years. As I say, completely untrue. They've actually won 12 by-elections in that period of time, nine under Jeremy Corbyn. Now, because this is Twitter, people can reply. Sebastian Payne is called out by Abby Wilkinson, um, who's a left-wing journalist. I don't understand what you mean by first by-election victory in nine years, she says. It's won lots of by-elections over the last nine years, including another one in Batley and Spen in 2016. Sebastian Payne, in response, says, sorry, it was a mistake. Have corrected. Meant first by-election gain. Now, you might say that, look, he's made a mistake. He's admitted his mistake. The problem is, in his admission of his mistake, he's made another mistake, which is said this is the first by-election gain since 2012. Now, that would be true if Labour had gained the seat. But Labour didn't gain Batley and Spen because Labour already held Batley and Spen. So you've got two examples here of people really, I suppose, twisting the truth, intentionally or otherwise, to make this seem like a bigger achievement for Keir Starmer than it actually was. Payne did, in the end, delete his tweet and issue a correction. There was, though, no such humility from the independence, John Rentoul. For him, if the facts didn't fit his narrative, he would just change the facts. He tweeted that Batley and Spen was, in effect, a Tory seat, in brackets, would have been Tory in 2019 if not for pro-Brexit independent, with Galloway a Labour vote splitter. Now, Aaron, this is quite remarkable, isn't it? It's a senior political journalist saying this seat which was held by Labour was actually a Tory seat and saying so to 
I suppose, emphasize or exaggerate the achievement of, of, of Keir Starmer. It's a very strange style of political journalism where you can just twist the truth and change the facts to make your argument stronger, even though everyone can see this. This wasn't, in effect, a Tory seat. It was, it was a Labour seat, right? <laughs> what do you make of these, these confusions and these contortions that we <clears throat> saw this morning? Well, it's two things, isn't it? So firstly, the British media is marked by something called bandwagon bias. They just all agree. Once there's a certain line, they all agree with it. They all just listen to each other and then repeat what they heard. Whether that's Brexit, whether that was opposition to Corbyn, whether that was, you know, the Trump thing. I mean, it's obviously not just limited to Britain. It's a cognitive bias. We're all capable of doing it. But I think the British media is uniquely bad at this, uh, probably because they're all in the same place in London. They all know each other. They all went to the same universities, same schools. Um, But still, despite all that, you would hope that, you know, he would have the wisdom to just say, ah, yeah, you're right. My mistake. My apologies. I'll delete that. And then just to post another tweet saying, sorry, brain freeze. Happen- happens to everybody, right? And I think anybody admonishing somebody else on Twitter for getting something wrong uh, knows that. So it just seems very strange. I think to me, it sort of illustrates the, the two things. The inability to accept they were wrong. Uh, and secondly, just, you know, their hot take is actually the hot take of somebody else. It's kind of reminiscent of all Oscar Wilde's quote about how most, and I don't agree with this quote, but I'd say it's probably true for many British political pundits. Um, their lives are an imitation, an impression of somebody else. I think that applies to their political views. You know, uh, Sebastian Payne has a book out on Labour's troubles in the Red Wall. He doesn't know how many by-elections Labour have won in the last few years. It would suggest he's probably not the best person to write that book. <laughs> I'm sure he won't be going to you for a review to appear on the front cover. We have our final story, which broke just a couple of hours before we went live. With Labour managing to hold on to Batley and Spen, you might have expected at least a brief stint of unity to break out at the top of the party. Why interrupt a good news story with internal factional fighting? However, you would be wrong. Allies of Keir Starmer have already begun turning on Angela Rayner, the party's deputy leader. This is what one shadow cabinet minister told the Times. Rayner spent the last eight weeks promoting herself as the next Labour leader. A total embarrassment. They actively helped the effort to defeat Labour. I think he should sack her and let her be deputy from the back benches. Now, another Labour source argued that the decision to sack Rayner as the party's national campaign chairwoman in May and replace her with Shabana Mahmood is the reason why Labour scraped through in Batley and Spen. They say the reshuffle was messy, but it resulted in Shabana Mahmood being made campaign chair. That was the turning point. This is a victory for those who made that happen. So they're saying actually that reshuffle that happened after Hartlepool that looked like a complete nightmare and undermined all of Keir Starmer's authority actually might look messy, but the outcome was ultimately a good thing. It was that botched reshuffle that won Keir Starmer this particular by-election. Now, obviously, these comments aren't going to go without a response from Angela Rayner's team. So her spokesperson said, whoever is doing this briefing and trying to use a fantastic Labour victory to undermine the elected deputy leader doesn't help Keir and doesn't help our party. Angela Rayner has, of course, denied any involvement or knowledge of preparations to launch a challenge, although they were um, widely briefed by sources close to her, I think, to various newspapers. We talked about those earlier in the week. Um, The Times also has this quote from someone who they describe as a supporter of the deputy leader. They say, 
Keir and his team tried to make Angela the scapegoat for Hartlepool and May's elections, and everybody knows how that turned out. The shadow cabinet minister calling for her, dis- calling her disloyal for actually doing the job Keir's appointed her to, and for being the only member of the shadow cabinet out attacking the Tories in the media every day, looks a bit daft. That was an Angela Rayner supporter. Now, you can see that the reference there, she's saying, they're saying whenever I go on the TV and, and talk about Tory failures, that's me preparing for a leadership campaign. She's saying, well, that's simply what I was, I'm supposed to do. You know, that's normally actually what the opposition do. Maybe no one on the Labour front bench does it, but it's not an unreasonable thing to do. It doesn't necessarily mean you're manoeuvring. might just mean you want to defeat the Conservatives. Aaron, what do you think is going on here? I'm not necessarily sure I buy this argument that Angela Rayner wasn't considering a leadership election. I think probably many people in the Labour Party were and that got, you know, that's now not going to happen because Labour surprisingly won it at the same time. Mm. Keir Starmer's people aren't necessarily in a good place to criticise people for preparing for leadership challenges during general elections. We know that Keir Starmer was doing that throughout the 2019 campaign. Who do you think is going to come out on top in the battle between Starmer and Rayner? Yeah, I think the hypocrisy here is unbelievable, isn't it? You know, I mean, I, I remember uh, Keir Starmer, I think, went to Southampton to campaign and he took a cameraman with him. And people thought, oh, this must be, you know, this must be for the election campaign, the, the general election campaign. Turned out it was for his leadership campaign, which happened immediately afterwards, which was clearly in his mind throughout the general election campaign, which ultimately, you know, Labour took a huge hit because of a political position he drove, i.e. the second referendum. And yet even during that same election, he had his mind on other things. Um, I, I don't think Angela Rayner was looking to launch a leadership campaign. I think if, if, if Labour had lost, the result as it is is very bad for Labour in the grand scheme of things. Um, and, and I talked about some other results they had last night, losing votes in bits of London, Lincolnshire, you know, obviously Amersham and Chesham, obviously Hartlepool, the local elections, it's, it's bad. And I think if, if, if Starmer had lost, if Labour had lost in Batley and Spell, I think he, he would have had to resign. I don't think he would have. But I think anybody with a, a sort of ounce of common sense would would agree that he would have to resign. And clearly, if that does happen, then people need to be prepared to run campaigns. I don't see the issue there. And equally, if they lost badly, if they came third to in, in the race and Galloway overtook them, always unlikely, but you know, not implausible. Ultimately, it was he got two thirds of their vote, right? No, no, three quarters of their vote. He got eight thousand something. They got thirteen thousand. Then clearly, clearly, these people will be losing their seats. I mean, even right now. Um, Angela Rayner, uh, Johnny Reynolds, Andrew Gwynn, Sam Tarry, um, West Streeting, Yvette Cooper, all these people's seats look really vulnerable right now. You know, I think so. it's a bit unfair to say, well, if you have this nadir, nobody should have a, a plan. I think that's kind of silly. And I don't think that would any political party, even with the nicest people in it, even ones that support Keir Starmer, I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. And I think the briefing this quickly was super strange, Michael. It doesn't make any sense to me because this is finally a good news story for Keir Starmer. It's a really good news story. And I just don't understand why the thing the public hate is the Labour infighting thing. They hate it. And I just don't know why you would re-inject that into the conversation so quickly. Why would you want to take the shine off? You know, because of this, if if if, if uh, Labour and Peace can keep their gob shut for a bit, if Keir Starmer can look authoritative, you know, the shine off this by-election result might bump them up in polls two, three, four percent. But they can't wait. They have to pile in. Um, and it, it really does suggest that their priorities aren't, aren't winning a general election. You know, it's personal enmities with these people. And, you know, it is Labour MPs, ultimately, that did for the last five five Labour leaders. People like Tom Watson got rid of Blair. People, you know, internally also undermined and got rid of Brown. Same with Ad Miliband. Same with Jeremy Corbyn. So I don't think it's unreasonable 
to think that there's there is obviously political maneuvering, but I don't think it's coming from the left. I mean, we know this because the socialist campaign group have said we don't have the signatures, even if we wanted to, to launch a leadership campaign. Similarly, we heard that seven or eight members of the socialist campaign group would get behind Angela Rayner, Angela Rayner if necessary. So the idea that there's this kind of organized conspiracy, I, I don't think, I, I know that's not true. Yeah, okay, people were prepared to respond to a potentially terrible set of events, um, but, but those aren't the same things. And I think the briefing probably is a more politically toxic thing than actually what they're accusing Angela Rayner of. Mm, interesting. In terms of what I'm pretty sure this this victory will be used now as a as sort of a momentum for Starmer to try and further attack and marginalise the left. But I think we're going to leave that for future shows. Um, normally at this point I say I'm going to be back on Monday. I'm not going to be back on Monday because I am going for a week's holiday. But Tisky Sauer will be in the capable hands, the exceptionally capable hands of Ash Sarkar and Aaron Bastani. So thank you, Aaron, for for taking over for me next week. My pleasure, Michael. And thank you for watching tonight's episode of Tisky Sour and for joining me tonight. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.